Welcome back to First Draft Phil. My name is Phil Lagert, and I am a singer-songwriter and worship leader. And uh, this is the first true episode. It's episode two. Last episode, I just gave you a brief intro about myself. So if you haven't checked that out, you can go back and listen to that. It's about eight minutes long. And uh, this episode is my first interview. A few weeks ago, I sat down with my good friend, John Copeland. John is a fantastic, anybody who knows John knows that he's a fantastic guy, uh, one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet, um, and if you have the privilege to talk to him about anything serious, you'll all, you'll also find he's one of the deepest guys that you'll meet, and uh, I've been privileged to know John for several years now, he's been a blessing to me, uh, my wife, our kids, our entire family, and uh, I just, uh, just sit back and listen to this, he shares a little bit in this first episode uh, one of two, uh, we had such a great time talking that we went on for a long time, um, which John is very able to do, <laughs> but it's always entertaining. Um, so just sit back and listen. John shares a little bit about his testimony um, and how he got into leading worship. Enjoy. So John, yes, tell us, tell, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me maybe about just... A minute, thirty seconds to a minute of your your faith journey, who you are, and w- what you do for a living. Ooh, thirty seconds to a minute. I know that's hard for you, John. I don't do well with uh, no parameters. Time. I can so, always put, fix it in post. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I'm currently a father and a husband. I have three daughters and a lovely wife. The, uh, wife is Anne. Daughters are Hannah, Karen, Eden. I'm the camp director for the Savage Savage Camp here in New Jersey, Camp Tecumseh. It's a wonderful, lovely camp. Uh, I'm not um, like a, our camp's better than your camp. I think we're all Camp Jesus. We're sure, all, but Camp Tecumseh is the best. It's a fair. fantastic place. Yeah. And uh, I grew up in the Salvation Army, you know, since I was a fetus. Same. And Fetal Salvation is I've here. I've gone well. to the Savage Army my whole life. I had, you know, a, a phase there in the teenage years, or um, probably early college, where definitely teenage high school years where I was just a big fat hypocrite, mm. working the Salvation Army system, winning awards, being put forth, <laughs> and knowing I was a complete fraud. Mm. Uh, I actually had an atheist friend of mine in high school who called me out at a party where I was just kind of letting myself get out of control. And there was a room at the party where, like, everybody who was just, like, passed out and had given in, you know, to uh, Bacchus or Epicurus, mm-hmm. whoever it is. Bacchus. And uh, he brought me in there. He was like, hey, man, look, this is, is this who you want to be? Mm-hmm. I would take my uniform to the party on Saturday night wow. to get a ride to church on Sunday. And I found nothing wrong with that because everybody at church was happy with who I was, at least right. who I presented. Mm-hmm. And my friend Steve, who didn't believe in God, mm-hmm. or it, it, as much as you cannot believe in God as a teenager, I think he just questioned so much that he was like, I'm going to go on the side of no. Mm-hmm. But he said, hey, man, is this who you want to become? Because I don't care what you believe, but I don't want to be friends with a hypocrite. Wow. And I was like, who are you? Like, to talk to me about God. It's like, you yeah. don't even believe. It's like, well, at least I'm consistent. You bring that, that suit 
I see you, and then you put it on and you go on scenes. Like, I just, you have to, I don't care what you believe. I just want you to be consistent. Yeah. And, dude, it was like. Yeah, that's awesome. And that was the beginning. I'd like to tell you that I dropped to my knees and sure. repented and levitated out of the room and, you know, led my whole entire city of Sumter, South Carolina to the Lord. But that was the beginning of. I would say a holiness process in me, mm. like a journey that I'm still on, you mm-hmm. know, to try to try to not be a hypocrite, to try to really live what I believe as much as possible, to yeah. have some humility, because <clears throat> that's what was missing. Mm. Um, and, you know, I try not to be too hard on myself, because I was a kid yeah. in transition from being an idiot to being hopefully not an idiot, from being a child to being an adult, from being... Someone, you know, in the Bible who's uh, living off of milk to somebody who can digest meat. Yeah. So, but yeah, that was, that was a, definitely a wake up call. Yeah. And so you went from there to... To Asbury College. As- Asbury College, not university. No, this wasn't university yet. Not Asbury for a long College. Time. Okay. Okay. I mean, I don't know how much you want to hear, but like the day I registered for classes at Asbury, I got a call from home that there was some news and my, hunk, my there's some bad news, and my uncle was having bypass surgery. Like, if you grow up in the South, my dad's like, you know, five, six brothers, and they're like our birthrights. Every one of them had at least a double bypass surgery. Yeah. So this is just. Are you going in for double bypass or yeah. single bypass? Yeah, uh, triple. So. <laughs> I'm going for a triple. So I thought my uncle, like, something had gone wrong with my uncle's surgery. Hmm. But my core officer called. I went to the dean of men's office, and he said, uh, Your sister. Lydia has been shot and killed, has been murdered. And, like, everything just stopped. Mm-hmm. She was 14 months older than me. She was waiting for the dentist. Uh, middle of the afternoon in nowhere, in, you know, little, mm-hmm. little town in South Carolina, like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, just waiting for the dentist to come back from lunch. And a guy owed money to a drug dealer. She drew a flashy little, like, 80s Corvette, like candy up a red, you know, mm. straight out of an 80s movie. Mm. And he walked up behind her and shot her and stole her car. And they caught him in 12 minutes. Mm. And there was no question. You know, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. But that, like, really rearranged everything in me. Like, yeah. foundationally, spiritually. Mm. Like, I didn't know, understand sort of when you read about the groanings of the spirit and when you read about grief beyond words. Hmm. And so my uh, college journey was really like tailored by the event. So I was in a pretty substantial depression hmm. and the Lord sent people to Asbury. I picked Asbury because they called to tell me that I got in instead of sending me. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't very academically inclined. <laughs> I was like, I guess I'm supposed to go to college and they called me, so I'm going to go there. Yeah. And I, you know, I knew people that went there, and <clears throat> Major Juanita Russell, um, who had herself just come back into active officership because she had taken a break because her husband had passed away, and she had just, you know, six to eight months ahead, mm-hmm. and the, you know, all the life that she had lived up till then ahead of me in the grief journey. But I really believe she was sent there only for me. Praise the Lord. To, because I was still really good at putting up that front that I had, you know, really cultivated in high school of presenting what I felt like people wanted me to see. And when you're in the middle of grief, it's exhausting to have to sure. try to comfort the people 
who are supposed to be comforting you. Because yeah. everybody wants to get back to normal. But mm-hmm. for you, there is no normal right. anymore. Yeah. And I was great at it. And I had fooled everybody. And mm-hmm. she's, uh, Major Juanita Russell is like one of the greatest people in the world. Mm-hmm. She's like this little firecracker who was like raised in the South, but went to training in the East. So she has like all of the, you know, wisdom uh, and discernment of like the soul of the South with all the streetwise, mm-hmm. tough, mm-hmm. you know, callous of the East. Yeah. And I mean both of those things in, in as compliments. Yeah. So you couldn't get anything by her ever. And one day she just, everybody had left the room and it was the whole thing. And I was like being loud and making everybody laugh. And, you know, and they all left. And she just looked at me and she said in her little voice, I just want you to know that I know that you're really in pain and you don't have to pretend here. If you need to come and just cry and just be. This is a place Oh, man. I did not know this woman. Hmm. Maybe maybe for two weeks I had met her. Yeah, well. And, I mean, it took my breath away. And then she just, like, let me be and walked out. Hmm. And we became, like, really best friends. And she was, you know, there were times, uh, I'm, I hope she doesn't mind me telling, like, her business, but there were times where we would both sit in a room and just be in tears and nothing else was happening. Hmm. But the spirit was really working that out. And I really started to understand what it was to rely on God because I didn't want to, but I was comforted by the Lord's presence mm-hmm. like I had never been. And that was a real, real encounter. And I, you know, I, I wondered, and I still do wonder, why does it take mm-hmm. your sister being murdered for you to be open, you know? And I, you know, there's a lot of answers to that question, but True. I started to at least understand the importance of being authentic Mm. The importance of being honest with the Lord. Mm. And, you know, that was really college. Asbury was the journey that I started on to, you know, yeah, sort of the path I'm on now and have been on for a while. There's terrible internet service here, or I don't have internet service, so I was going to do, I was going to search for a C.S. Lewis quote, but you probably heard it anyway, which would not have helped you at the time if somebody said, oh, there's a C.S. Lewis quote. <laughs> right. The ministry of presence mm-hmm. that, that she had with you was... God's yeah. avenue to, yeah. You know how they say, like, the the higher level of friendship you have with someone, the less you need to speak in their presence. Mm-hmm. And, like, your best friends, you can just sit around and just faff about and do nothing, and yeah. you somehow got closer together. Yeah. So we started our relationship there. Yeah, wow. And that's a very different thing. And, mm-hmm. like, it's been a long time since I've been there. I try to call her every year on her birthday, which is April April Fool's Day, so it's easy <laughs> to remember. And um, do you I, do do you do your standard nice job? No, I don't. Okay. I actually tell her I okay. love you, happy birthday. I tell everyone else nice job, which is a funny story because when I was at, I later worked in the youth department in Philadelphia, and they would bring us like cards to pray for people every day, and they would just like write a little note to them so we can send this to them in training <laughs> or whatever. And I'm like, I don't I've know. Heard, I've heard this story. I don't know any of these people. Like, what am I supposed to write to them? And they're like, well, yeah. write something. Mm-hmm. We'll make it personal. So I just started writing nice job because I figured it's always applicable, right? You wrote it on something that was not. Oh, no. There's, I I argue that it's always applicable. Okay. Because this happened to me when I was looking for the Salvation Army in Melbourne, except for I wrote happy birthday on a I'm sorry for your loss car uh, that was going around. Well, somebody brought that up. And they're like, well, what if this is like. A card because, you know, they're uh, somebody in their family passed away, 
And I was like, well, nice job for not being in the casket. And then <laughs> oh, man. if you're in, nice job making it to heaven. It always yeah. works. It just depends on how cynical and yeah. how low your standards are. Mine uh, happily are very low, so it works out. Well, so you so okay, so you're at Asbury. Mm-hmm. You, you finish. I did, amazingly, yes. I By the finish. grace of God, you finished Asbury. Mm-hmm. And then you went straight here to be the... No, after Asbury, I moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina, across the street from Winthrop University, Mm -hmm. where my plan, I had graduated with a degree in English literature, mostly because by the time I got to the end of my senior year, you had to declare a major or you couldn't be a, at the end of my junior year, you had to declare a major or you couldn't be a senior. And I hadn't declared a major, I was just sort of taking classes and I liked English and I liked literature, so I took a lot of those. My advisor at the time, who I won't name, for the first three years of my college journey, wasn't how you would say uh, invested. Okay. And he, at the this is before computers, because as, as I mentioned, I'm very old. You would get this big, huge piece of paper that you would have to fill out your course schedule on and mm-hmm. then get it signed by your advisor. And yeah. that's how you would enroll in classes. And he would just mail me that big form in the campus post office with his signature on it and just have me fill them out, which I was totally cool with. Uh-huh. And also, he wasn't wrong. But I had to declare major, so English was the best bet so I could actually graduate. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll go be like an English professor. So I need to get, uh, you know, some more degrees. Right. Winthrop was a, you know, decent school. They always make the NCAA tournament, so I figured it can't sure. be that bad. Sure. I, don't, I don't know if I'm very discerning in choosing why or how to go to college. But I moved across the street. I had a great gig. Uh, my friend uh, Chuck Whiten, who's an Chuck, officer. yeah. Also, Chuck and I share the same weird middle name of Marion. He's the only other guy I know. He's Charles Marion White, and I'm John Marion Copeland, the fourth. But uh, he hooked me up with a guy who I feel like was like <clears throat> vice president at Bank of America or somewhere like that, had gone to Winthrop, bought the house he lived in, like this old Victorian house, and there were seven bedrooms, mm-hmm. and it was just a place for guys who either needed to get back on their feet, single guys, or like trying to go to school, rent was $125 a month, and utilities were always divided by seven, no matter how many people lived in the house. So I had a bedroom and a a bathroom. Then there was a shared living room, a shared dining room, a kitchen, and like a big basement space where people could work out if you were into that. I obviously never went to the basement. But, uh, you know, I thought it was a really good plan. Yeah. And I was just going to work. I worked like a dog at... The YMCA from like five in the morning until two in the afternoon. And then I drove to the Boys and Girls Club in Gastonia, North Carolina and worked there until eight or nine at night. Okay. Just trying to pay off some loans Mm -hmm. and go to school the next year. And I was in my room watching TV, doing my thing, and I just felt uneasy. And for the first time in a long time, I spoke out loud to the Lord. And I turned off the TV and I just said to nobody, and I felt really foolish, but I was like, all right, listen, <laughs> if this is not the plan you have for me, you have to show me something else because yeah. I feel like this is a good idea. Yeah. But it's not my fault if I'm doing the wrong thing because you have to show me the right thing. Mm-hmm. And like at most 10 minutes later, the phone rang and Major Russell, Juanita Russell called, and Paul Keene, who was the DYS in Philadelphia, uh, he had been at uh, the camp close to Asbury, and now he's moved to Philadelphia, and he was back visiting. And she said, Paul Keene is in my office, and he's looking for somebody to do camp and college ministries. And I was like, he's, he's in your office right now? Yeah. I said, well, 
My mom always had a rule that you couldn't ask if someone could spend the night if they were there when you were asking. So I'm not going to answer while he's in the room. Right. And I hung up and I was like, Philadelphia? Because... Southern boy. Yeah. I always like to say, this is Derek Russell's joke, but it's a really good one. I didn't know Damn Yankee was two words until I was 17. Right. So, Philadelphia, I couldn't, if you grow up in the Southern Territory, you can't imagine anywhere north of Baltimore. Right. And even that's like... And even that's like, like, you know, that's like the mission field. Yeah, it's not really the South. Right. So, I just was like, I don't... But I knew if I applied for this job, I would get hired. Not because I am inequality but because God has a sense of humor and I waited for two weeks and then I made a collect call from the pool at the YMCA which I'm still waiting on the bill for and I was like hey I'm, I'm calling about that job I'm sure you probably filled it and they're like oh no not at all send in your resume so I sent it in we had like three phone calls about an hour and a half each or so and then mm-hmm. he called me back one day and he said hey I can't believe I'm saying this but I'd like to offer you the job yeah, wow. What do you look like? So we can fly you up here and pick you up from the airport. Wow. Because I had said, Chuck and Chuck White had helped me work on a resume in like MS Paint. Like that's how old it was. Nice. And the only photo, I, we wanted to scan a photo in and make it look fancy. And the only one I have was my South Carolina driver's license, which has like squiggly lines in it. So Chuck went in and took the lines out, but it took like part of my face out. So he went in and put it in and I looked like <laughs> I had just escaped from a circus. So there's no way to tell what I look like. But I went up. And I, I worked uh, in Philly at Camp Lador. I lived in Philadelphia during the year. I worked at Camp Lador during the summers and did that for 10 years with lots of other things. I took over a ministry there called Generation Next, mm-hmm. which was for high school and college kids. It was just like a discipleship. Yeah. We stole from the Home League. Okay. Because... Um, they always have surplus. Yeah, they have they have really good... You know, it's set up really well. It's like program, there's fellowship. Yeah. There's uh, education, discipleship, whatever all their tenants are. We just like stole them and pretended that we thought of it. Yeah. And worked with kids all across Philadelphia. Loved it. And then one day it just felt unsettling again. Because Chuck later on had offered me, talked about maybe offering me a job. He was not in Annapolis, Maryland. And um, when I moved to, I did look for jobs in the South. Yeah. But nothing was happening. And when I moved to Philly... I thought, well, maybe people in the South are offering me a job now, but they didn't. But then I got married to my wife, Anne, and she moved from the South up to the North, and then immediately people started offering us jobs to come back. Because hmm. me going, they were okay with me, and, and I don't blame them. But I never felt okay to do that. Yeah. And then Chuck, we met at Bible Conference in the South at Lake Tunaleska. Mm-hmm. He was like, look, don't tell me no. But just meet, have lunch, talk it out. And, and I, you know, Chuck was a friend, so I was like, I'll at least get a free lunch out of it. Sure. And he was like, what do you think it would take to come and do this? And I was like, I'll just say some ridiculous thing, and he'll, there's no way he'll do it. So I said a bunch of ridiculous demands. And he was like, yeah, that could work. So then I was a little freaked out because I didn't have an escape. Luckily, they got moved. Thank God. The Salvation Army moves people so much. That's the first time that sentence has ever been said. Right. Um, They got moved, but I did feel like it was okay for us to think about something else. If Mm -hmm. the Lord had something Mm -hmm. else. And then this position at Tecumseh, or a version of this position at the time, opened up. And I thought... What year was that? That was uh, 2007. Okay. And I thought, oh, man, if I go into Ann, we always assumed we would move back down south at some point. Right. Because all our family were there. 
you know, that's where we're from. We love it. So you go in and you say, and, and not only is the plant, not only is the thought not moving. Yeah, south, it's New Jersey. It's New Jersey. We're going, we're going further. Yeah. yeah, not just further, but New Jersey. Right. Which everybody thinks is horrible, but oh, it's man. really the Garden State. It's beautiful. Everybody is okay. We just pause right here yeah. because everybody in the South, mm-hmm. myself included, yeah. I grew up in Atlanta, mm-hmm. thinks. I mean, New, Jer- New York's one thing. I don't know what you think. It's hard to now that I've lived here, lived in New Jersey for for several years. It's absolutely beautiful. There's a couple of spots where you're like, you know, every state has a right. couple spots, but nobody thinks about. And it is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, well, listen, I had lived in Philly for 10 years and still saw, thought the same thing. I lived across a bridge from Southerners, New Jersey. Southerners, if you're, if you're watching or listening or whatever, New Jersey's great. It's lovely. But I thought I would go into Ann and say, hey, what about New Jersey? And then she would, you know, promptly drop hit me <laughs> in the throat. But she had said, because Ann is holy. Um, it, helps, it helps to have mm. a spouse who's holy and, mm. you know, and right, and and like when I moved to Philly, I called my mom and I was like, "Hey, the office job in Philly. What do you think?" And she said, "If the Lord wants you to go to Philly, it doesn't matter what I think." And I was like, "Well, you're no help." So I called <laughs> Anne to get her to talk me out of it. And for real, I said, "Hey," because Anne and I had like Anne was the kind of person hmm. that I ran from her. Like I dated all of her friends because I knew there was nothing there. Because Anne was like a forever commitment. Right. So when we finally started dating, mm-hmm. you know, you only say yes to forever to Anne. Right. And so I knew that that was the case. So we were dating, but we knew where it was going. Mm. So I said to her, hey, Philly, what do you think? And she said, if the Lord wants you to go to Philly, it doesn't matter what I think. And I wow. Was like, <laughs> Conspiracy. When I came in to say Jersey, of course, she was like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, well. So we found ourselves here, and it was absolutely the right thing to do. That was 2007. 2007. At that point, you'd been married. Who, what, is this a quiz? Sorry. Well, 99. I'm trying to think, we were married in 99. I'm not a math person, but whatever those years You've are. You've already introduced yourself as uh, the daughter of the no, not the daughter, the father of four daughters. So where were you, what years were they in, in, in there? Hannah so, was born uh, three, four, five, 2003. Okay. The, yeah, we, we got it. We got it over with quick. 2003, <laughs> 2004, 2005. Yeah. So we have three little kids yeah. who were loving a camp, and we're moving to another camp. And, I mean, now they're 17, yeah. 18, 19. Yeah. Two, two high school graduates and one. Camps are a great place to raise kids. I mean, they've, they've had a lovely time here. It's, yeah. I've seen worse. Yeah. yeah. Well, dude, I have... Um, that's awesome. I love your testimony, and anybody who knows you knows you're a great storyteller anyway, so it doesn't matter what story you tell. <laughs> it's going to be inter- entertaining, <laughs> but it's even true. more meaningful like to, to share your heart, so yeah. that, that's awesome. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about, we've worshipped together, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, when, when my wife and I and our family lived here, we were at Flemington Corps together, um, so... Talk to me a little bit about your 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 music, like where music came into your life or how it's a part of your life, and then like what did that look like? I know you're a brass player as well, and so what did what did it look like for you growing up? And like how did because you do music now with uh, with Unbound, and you do oh, a this few, is not even I know, I know, this is great. You're welcome, Doug. <laughs> I tried to get Doug for an interview, but um, he said no. John will go for me. No, he's a, um, he's a jerk. But you so just talk about a little bit a little bit about how just 
if somebody asked you, how did you get into worship ministry? What would you say? To them? It started with brass music. Okay. Um, uh, I, you know, growing up in the Salvation Army at the time that I grew up, at some point, if you kept going to the chorus, somebody was going to put a cornet in your hand. Right. And so I did that. It didn't take uh, my mouth. This is way too big. And my embouchure is so horrible. You moved to trombone though, right? I started on cornet. Okay. And, it, and then I went to baritone and the mouthpiece was better, but still mashing the valves didn't do it. And then, um, oh man, I feel so bad. I think his name is Don Smith. Okay. Um, there's so many fantastic officers going through. If I start naming, I'm going to forget. Sure. But I know John Roy Jones and uh, Art of Jones, they were there and okay. were really big in getting the music and things going at the core. Yeah. But I think we had Don Smith, I think is his name, who was a cadet. Okay. Uh, or was there. He definitely was like not the main officer and he came for like a short amount of time and he played trombone. Okay. And he put it in my hand. I was like, well, this is way better. This is good. Yeah. And it just made sense to me. Yeah. And so I started playing trombone, and then I started playing trombone in the school, and I was pretty good, mm-hmm. but I was really lazy. the The problem with me is if things come easy to me, then I don't work on them. I mean, I think uh, to be fair to you, I think that's most of us, right? right. But it's so yeah. it's very difficult for me to achieve my fullest potential in the things that I'm really good at. Okay, uh, you know, it's the plight. That might existence. be a whole sub-conversation. Yeah, but uh, I was really good on trombone. It just came naturally to me, and like, I, I didn't have to work really hard at it, but I really enjoyed it. Like, yeah. I wanted it to sound good, you know what I mean? Sure. And I was in youth band, all that stuff. And I'm still, like, a lover. I still love trombone. I won't... Uh, luckily, nobody's ever going to see this, so our divisional music director, Nathan Power... I think I recently saw... You were you did do something. You were You were a sub or something... Didn't you play trombone recently? When I say recently, within the past two years, you've played trombone for something. Well, it's interesting, like, all these little things pop up that I do get to play trombone and some very surprising things for the Salvation Army and for uh, just random people that I meet, Hmm. which I can talk talk to you about a little bit. But, yeah, so I played played trombone on an Unbound. Uh, Yeah. um, We did an album last year for commissioning. We live-streamed it in... Oh yeah, it's called Fantastic it's called Rising Moon. It's, it came out really great, right? I so love we that. recorded all that in like two Best one yet, full I, takes. I think, yeah. But Doug and I, Doug Barry, he played trumpet and I played trombone and we went we did record those parts uh you know, pre-recorded them because we couldn't do that live cuz everything had to be yeah. in one take. Yeah. So they would have just bled over. But it is really us, and we did it in like two takes. Yeah, yeah. And people are still like, that's not you guys. Because it, it doesn't, that's not because it sounds fantastic, but it just doesn't sound horrible. But on the video, because it's recorded, we're playing like the plastic ones, just oh, because right. we thought it was funny. Yeah. But I play trombone with them. I've played trombone in in college. I played trombone in, You were we were talking earlier today about like Salvation Army, like, alternative like yeah, yeah. groups I don't know if this was a, it's made it mostly of Salvation Army people at the time Kevin Sparks Amy Kerno, myself and a guy named Adam yeah you didn't know about this did you who played he wasn't a Salvationist but he's a really great tenor saxophone player and then um, oh gosh the drummer was like the best musician in the group and I can't remember his name what's yeah. the name of this Okay, it started, I think we ended up calling it Photograph. And by we, I mean Kevin Sparks. Okay. Uh, who's a very heady, like groovy Sparks. dude. Okay. But he did a lot, a lot of cool arrangements, like of hymns, 
back before that was even popular. Hmm. And uh, he, it was called Photograph with hmm. the F's on each side, you know, where like bookended facing Perfect. each other. At one point, I think it was called League of Mercy as a joke. And then Ensemble Possible. But like Charlie Peacock, because that's a real name, right? He like was putting together a demo of like new sort of worship bands. And we, I think they had gotten, you know, there was some talk about us getting on a wow. little demo thing. But then everybody quit. <laughs> it's a whole another. That's another yeah, wow. podcast. But yeah, but I played trombone in that. Okay. Um, and you know, I've always played in brass bands, the Asbury Band, whatever. Yeah. So, but when I moved to Philly, hmm. the Pendle Brass uh, is pretty big, pretty big deal. Great, like brass education program and all that. Yeah. And when I graduated, right before I moved to Philly, when I graduated from college, my mom and my sister bought me a guitar, an acoustic guitar, okay. as a graduation present, and I. Always just wanted to learn to play guitar. Mm-hmm. And I was horrible, but I started doing it. Chuck Whiten will tell you, like, he saw the beginnings. And Chuck's a good, really good guitar player. Yeah, he is, yeah. Yes, and he was trying to you know, show me some stuff. And we were at this really small core in Rock Hill, sure. so, you know, the, the, the stakes weren't too right. high in terms yeah. of being embarrassed sure. in front of people. Yeah. The stakes are the same high in terms of making an offering to the Lord, but I didn't realize that at the time, so it didn't make me nervous. But right. he convinced me to play offertory. This is the first time I ever played guitar in public. Hmm. I couldn't barely, I could barely string together like three chords. Hmm. And he convinced me. I remember the song was, I want to love you. I want to worship you. I want to follow you more than I do. Right? Mm-hmm. And we practiced and practiced. I was just going to play, and he was going to sing, because Chuck's also a lovely singer. Sure. We get up for the offertory. It's in D. I play the intro, like, boom, 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 the twang, twang, twang. And I hit the D. Chuck starts singing, and then I go to hit the other chord, and I actually slid up one fret. Oh, no. So it wasn't <laughs> anything. Like, it wasn't in any key. He sang in D the whole time. <laughs> Oh, and there's man. like seven people in the audience all looking very confused. Oh, man. I am pouring down in sweat, and we get to the end, and he's singing <laughs> more than I do, but I'm playing, you know? Yeah. And I remember very vividly at the end of the offertory, it was quiet for a second, and one lady on the front row just went. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, later that Lord. week, later that week, we were riding around doing some stuff for the court and Chuck and I, and you know you get to that lull in the conversation where you're talking and talking, and then it's quiet for a second, and it was quiet, and then Chuck just goes, so that's pretty bad on Sunday, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But, hey, he said they can only go, go that, up from that's there. That's right, man. They can so only go up from there. That was your beginning. That was the beginning of playing guitar. When I went to yeah. Philly, yeah. I played bass guitar, mm-hmm. and by that I mean just root chords sure. at the right time. yeah. Because I was trying to help out. There was like a young worship band, and it was when it was really getting more popular, and we had right. like overhead projectors and things. Yeah. And then the guy who led worship, his parents were at another core with the ARC in the city of Philly, yeah. where there were like 17 core at the time. So they were like, hey, he can't be here today. Can you just lead worship today? I was like, all right, I'll try. And then uh, he never came back to that core, and that's <laughs> how I started leading worship. That's awesome. So, as you can see, uh, John is very fun to listen to, but uh, some great deep stuff in there. Uh, Next week, I'll finish off the conversation with John, and uh, you'll just get to hear more of his story. Thanks for tuning in, guys. See you next week.